Hi everyone, thanks for joining us as we continue on through our Hebrew study. I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. That'll be the section that Steve shares some thoughts from in a few moments. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles as I read Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Well, may the Lord bless the reading of his word, and may the Lord bless you as we work through this passage. Now, the passage that uh, Jake read just before, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, actually assumes a lot of familiarity with the tabernacle. And so one of the things that we're going to do this morning, actually, is a little bit different. Um, I'm going to take us back to the book of Exodus, and we're going to take, a, take some time to consider uh, the tabernacle as a whole, as well as some of the sort of accoutrements inside of it, and try to determine a little bit about why is the tabernacle so significant. I mean, the author of Hebrews, of course, here in the ninth chapter, is looking at various things like the lampstand, the consecrated bread, you know, the most holy place, the golden altar of incense, the uh, gold-covered ark of the covenant, you know, the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff. That's budded the stone tablets of the covenant, the ark, or the cherubim of the glory, and he mentions all of these things, and he then he stops. He says, "Now we we don't have time to talk about this right now," which means, of course, uh, that he could have actually. Uh, he's given so much thought. Uh, by this time, we've seen that thought demonstrated in terms of how much thought and attention he had paid to the details of the Old Testament. Uh, he's able to bring out all kinds of biblical theological. Uh, lessons from antecedent material in Scripture, and so when he tells, so when he says, "Listen, you know, we cannot discuss these things in detail now." You, you know that he was able to do so, which means, by the Holy Spirit, it's worth our time to stop and consider some of these things. What is the significance, biblically and theologically, to these items that he mentions? And he goes on, of course, again to talk about the high priest or the priests going in. Uh, once a year, never without blood, how they served in the tabernacle, how the high priest only could go into the ta uh, Holy of Holy place every year, and how the Holy Spirit was showing that as long as this 
old covenant system remained in, in practice and in force, the way to God's presence had not yet been open. The, the consciences of the worshipers were not yet cleared because the, the sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again. And so those sacrifices were a continual reminder that the way to God is still closed because of human sin. These things are only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings. You know, verse 10 says they were external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And so they were in force. They were supposed to be obeyed for the time that God had established them to sort of persist in and through. But when the new order comes, when the change in law occurs, when the new covenant is here through the blood of Christ, when the new high priest is here, the one in the order of Melchizedek, now it's time to set these things aside, not because they're useless, but because they've fulfilled their purpose. They functioned for a time, and now that time is done because the fulfillment in Christ has arrived. Uh, this morning, then, what I want to do is spend just a little bit of time uh, thinking about the Exodus and the tabernacle together, because that's the sort of the the thought theological context that our author of Hebrews is drawing on. Uh, Steph has put together some uh, PowerPoint uh, slides uh, for me. Uh, I provided the content and she made them look good. Uh, so I'm going to be just sort of tracking through uh, this PowerPoint presentation and hopefully it's something that we can benefit from as we look at the Word of God together. First thing to note, of course, is that uh, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 uh, obviously assumes familiarity with the tabernacle, and that assumes familiarity with the book of Exodus. Uh, the last half of Exodus, of course, is really focusing on the tabernacle. That's a lot of space, chapters 25 through 40. Uh, there's a lot of repetition. Uh, repetition highlights its importance. So one of the things you can do, actually, you can subdivide uh, Exodus 25 through 40 into three chunks. Uh, the first is chapters 25 through 31. The second is chapters 32 through 34. And then the third is chapters 35 through 40. Now, the reason that this is done, uh, we'll see in a little bit. But the focus is sort of driven into that middle section you know, chapters 32 through 34. The tabernacle material brackets it on each side. Now you'll notice if you pay careful attention to when the uh, tabernacle instructions are given, which is when God gives the instructions to Moses about how the tabernacle is to be built, there are seven sections. And each one is introduced with, then the Lord said, then the Lord said, so Exodus 25, 1, Exodus 30, 11, Exodus 30, 17, Exodus 30, 22, Exodus 30, 34, Exodus 31, 1, and Exodus 31, 12. All says, then the Lord said. Now, this is obviously mirroring uh, the seven speeches of God in Genesis 1, 3 through 2, 4. That is, the building of the tabernacle mirrors, it's symmetrical with God's creation week. God's speech begins a new creative pattern, a new creative work every time. He begins a new 
day of creation in Genesis 1. So it's this creation week pattern that's sort of being recapitulated. That is, this creation week pattern is being gone over again. It's being represented uh, in the building of the tabernacle. Uh, it's God's speech, of course, uh, in Genesis 1 that makes the world, that creates life. And it's God's speech in Exodus, mirroring creation life, that provides for the making of the tabernacle and the saving of human life in a redemptive pattern. But if you work through the text carefully, uh, in terms of tabernacle and later temple, it's very, very clear uh, that the tabernacle and the temple sort of represent creation and Eden. It's temple restored. It's access to God again uh, after the sin of Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden. But the sixth time that God speaks to Moses, he says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed a holy son of Ahishamak of the tribe of Dan to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments of Aaron, or for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. So when God speaks here, uh, he sets apart two people who will be filled with the spirit, is, uh, filled with breath, a Hebrew has one word, ruach, for spirit, breath, and wind. Uh, ruach can mean any one of those three things, depending on context. And so uh, God, when he forms Adam, he breathes into Adam. The spirit of God is hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. Here, God sets aside two people to supervise the building of the tabernacle. In the same way, on the sixth day, in Genesis 1, he sets aside two people, Adam and Eve, to take care of the garden. The seventh time God speaks in Exodus, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the seventh time 
the Lord speaks, it's actually not about the, uh, it's not about continuing to form the tabernacle. It's about having a Sabbath rest, working for six days, and then having a Sabbath rest on the seventh day in imitation of the pattern established by the Lord in Genesis 1, in the creation week. And so the creation week has God speaking six times to work on the sixth day, establishing two people to care for the garden. On the seventh day, God enters into rest. The tabernacle, six times God speaks in terms of uh, building instruction. The sixth time sets apart two people by the Spirit to take care of the tabernacle and to supervise its building. The seventh time God speaks, it's all about the Sabbath rest. So there's clearly a mirroring going on between creation week and the building of the tabernacle. So God has sort of this pattern language uh, for his own abode, for his own tabernacle. Exodus 25, 8 to 9. That have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God wants a sanctuary uh, to be built. He wants the tabernacle as a dwelling place. It's his tent. It's his home. And it's actually going to go in the very middle of the camp. God is going to camp in the middle of his people when they are camping. All the Israelites are in, in tents. God will have a tent as well. Later on in Jerusalem, when the people are living in the city, God will have a permanent home, a temple uh, that's built. But the tabernacle, interestingly enough, is based on sort of the architecture of God's heavenly home. So the tabernacle is significant in a variety of ways, one of which is this. It's actually mirroring the, the, the symbolic architecture of heaven itself and the throne room of God. God is establishing his heavenly home in the middle of his people. So we know already that actually Eden as a garden is a sanctuary that reflects heaven as well. Uh, and this is made very clear actually in the end of Revelation. Uh, so the tabernacle is a sanctuary that reflects Eden and heaven. Revelation 21, 22 shows the new heavens and new earth as a glorified temple, tabernacle, Eden sanctuary. I mean, all of the, uh, all the imagery is very, very clear in Revelation that you're drawing in temple, drawing in tabernacle, and drawing in Eden. Now, I'd argue, actually, that what's really going on here isn't that the authors are looking for sim symbolism in Eden, tabernacle, temple, so that they then have a symbolism to apply to heaven. Rather, the symbolism, we find out, flows in the reverse way. That is, God has always had the new heavens and new earth in mind, and he has built from the very beginning creation to point forward to that uh, eschatological consummation. That is, the new heavens and new earth in, in a logical sense, not in a temporal sense, but in a logical sense, the new heavens and new earth comes first. God sees it, then designs creation to point forward to it. Designs Eden, then tabernacle, then temple to point forward to the end and what we will live in, in the new heavens and new earth. So the tabernacle looked perhaps something like this. Uh, we can see it uh, there uh, sort of in this replica built in the desert. 
it's not enormous. It was portal, it was something that could be collapsed and carried around. Uh, the courtyard, again, this wasn't a massive uh, structure. You can see clearly, you couldn't have got you know a ton of priests in there at one time. Uh, but this is where God was going to meet with his people. This was his tent where he was going to dwell in the midst of his people. The arrangement was that God was going to be at the very center. You can see in the slide, you know, the tabernacle is central. Then camped around the tabernacle are certain uh, clans of the Levites who had special functions. And then the rest of the Levites were uh, sort of around them. Then the remainder of the tribes, uh, north, south, east, west, were camped around the Levites. So the whole idea was God was at the very center of everything. The ones who took care of the tabernacle and served in that order were around him, guarding the holiness of God, and then the rest of the Israelites were around them. So, in terms of sort of textual analysis, uh, chapters 25 through 31 describe the instructions for building the tabernacle. We've already seen that. Chapters 35 through 40 describe its actual construction in detail. That's where you get all this repetition. I mean, it seems like in chapters 35 through 40, all you're being told is, remember all those instructions in chapters 25 through 31? Now they did it. You know, that's sort of the message. Now, this may seem relatively obvious, but chapters 32 through 34 fall in the middle of this. So you have instructions for tabernacle building. You have instructions for the actual, uh, or sorry, you have uh, the narrative that tells you that these things were done, that the instructions were followed. And then you have this very neat event that falls in the middle. This is very pivotal. So it's worth reminding ourselves of what takes place during this sort of narrative cluster in chapters 32 and through 34. Chapter 32, of course, is about the golden calf. When Moses comes down the mountain, and he sees what's going on. You remember, he shatters the law, he smashes the stone tablets. And this is not him being angry. He's never rebuked for this later. Uh, this is not the reason he can't go to the promised land. In fact, he probably, or was probably supposed to interpret this as he shatters the law in terms of an act of symbolism. That is, the law, the covenant has been broken already. Uh, first commandment is not to have God, any other gods before the Lord God. Next is not to have any idols. They, they've already broken those commandments immediately. Symbolically, the covenant is broken before Moses even gets off of Mount Sinai to where the people are. We see God's wrath and judgment uh, released, but then also this incredible revelation of God's glory and name. Remember when he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, sort of covers him with his hand and then passes by, allowing Moses to see sort of the the after effects of the glory of God. And then God proclaims his name to Moses. Now, the, the question, of course, is how can God still dwell with these people? How can God still plan on putting his presence in the very middle of the camp? And, and you're not really told at this time, actually, but God still promises Moses, even though the people have rebelled and shattered my covenant. I will still put my presence in their midst. So what you have in chapters 32 through 34 is you've just had these instructions for recreating Eden and God putting Eden in the middle of his people. 
And then they violate the covenant before it's even started. And God says, I'm going to destroy the people. There's still a fear, uh, Moses intercedes. There's a fearful plague. There's substitution, in a sense. God reveals his name, his glory. And then the tabernacle is built. You could never think that God puts his presence in the middle of his people because they deserve it. They, they've demonstrated they deserve wrath and judgment and death. They, they've demonstrated, in many ways, they, they, they want the golden calf. They, they don't even want the God who brought them out of Egypt. God says, no. No, I have this plan to be with you, and I will still execute it. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will live amongst you. Even their idolatry and the, and sort of the profaning of the covenant. The shattering of the covenant. It doesn't derail God's gracious plan to live with his people. So this sort of ABA literary structure of Exodus 25 through 40 sort of funnels you to the to the B section, the middle section, Exodus 32 through 34. That hinge section is it's what's literally pivotal. The text pivots around it. And it shows you how gracious God is this tabernacle is still going to be built. Now, our author of Hebrews here uh, mentions a few things that are inside of uh, the tabernacle. One is the table and the bread of the presence. Now, this is a small gold table inside uh, the tabernacle. Uh, it, it demonstrates you know, that, that God, the king, dines on a table of gold, and, and there's vessels of gold. He, he's not poor. Uh, there's 12 loaves of bread. One for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's hospitality. God is setting out food for everyone. There's enough symbolically for all of the tribes of Israel. Everyone's welcome to eat at the king's golden table. He's hospitable. He welcomes his people in. And remember, you always remember, these are the same people who violated the covenant in Exodus 32 through 34. You're supposed to keep that continually in mind. Then you have the lampstand. You know, if you remember that picture of the tabernacle, the tabernacle was very dark. You know, there's no windows. And so I mean, if, you, if you've ever been camping, you know, obviously a lot of our tents are, are so light today in terms of material that when the sun shines on them, they can heat up very quickly inside. Um, but there's also enough sort of trans transparency in terms of light coming in uh, that you can see during the day. Uh, but you have thick uh, cloth. Uh, in, in, in sort of thick fabric that's used in this in the tabernacle construction, and so you go inside. And it's almost like you know, it's it's kind of like you know, crawling headfirst into a sleeping bag. I mean, you just can't see very much at all. So the lampstand actually has a very practical function of providing light. Uh, it also burned oil, and. Uh, one of the things that we actually don't understand living this side of Edison is we don't understand how much it, how much of a pain it was for people, even if they had good processed oil for oil-burning lamps uh, and candles. It was actually enormously difficult for a lot of people to afford oil and candles. In fact, if you, if you track back about 500 years and look at sort of per capita costs for, for, a, for a person in terms of their, their uh, daily wage, how much a candle would cost. 
it's unbelievable. And so nobody in the ancient world burned oil gratuitously. No, no one would. And so you didn't ever, if even if you had the option of lighting a lamp, you would never do that unless you were home. The lampstand is to be kept burning all the time. That is, it's symbolically showing you the king is always in residence. The king is always home. It was kept burning 24 hours a day to show that the king was always there and always awake. He who watches over Israel, Psalm 121, will neither slumber nor sleep. You turned off your lamp. You blew out the candle to be anachronistic when you went to bed. The, the Lord, the king, never goes to bed. He is Yahweh, the Lord is always home. Then you have the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it was overlaid with pure gold, the cherubim symbolizing holiness and death. God sort of stood on top or was seated on this mercy seat uh, as his, as his um, throne. The ten words of the commandments were inside. Uh, here the author in Hebrews 9 mentions also that you have uh, the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. You know, the, the golden altar of incense, you know, with this gold ark, you know, the gold-covered ark, you know, are, are symbolizing the covenant. Uh, they're symbolizing the place of atonement. So the mercy seat, the blood uh, of the day of atonement was sprinkled on top. So the cherubim, the, the guardians of the holiness of God, the ones who bring death to sinners, who trespass on the presence of God, they look down and they see the law covered by blood. The law that's that's contained inside of this Ark of the Covenant, you know, the, the cherubim look down, sort of to gaze at the law that's been broken. And they either see the broken law or they see the covering blood. The substitutionary blood which covers us from our law uh, transgression. This is obviously also, uh, of course, a cast back to Eden. Uh, in Eden, when Adam and Eve are driven out, it's a cherubim that is placed with a flashing sword guarding the way back into the garden so they can't eat from the tree of life. It's the same thing here. The, the cherubim, if you, come into the if you come into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, you know, you're struck dead unless you're the high priest once a year with substitutionary blood. Uh, our author doesn't mention this, but this is just worth noting. You know, the, the high priest was actually dressed like a king, you know, showing that the great king has a king priest, uh, or a kingly priest, rather. Uh, the text in Exodus that talks about his garments actually mentions that they're supposed to be beautiful. You know, beauty and aesthetics matter to God. Uh, there are 12 precious stones put on the breast piece, uh, each one representing one of the tribes. So when the priest, high pri when, sorry, when the high priest serves, he is representing the people to God. On the top of the turban, sort of, a, or, or rather, uh, on this gold band around the turban that he wore, uh, you have an inscription, holy to the Lord, that is, he's completely set apart to belong to God. This is the most important feature of the high priest. He was reserved for God. One of the amazing things, though, in the prophet Zechariah is we're told that eventually, holy to the Lord is going to be inscribed sort of on, on the hooves of horses, and on cooking utensils and pots. The amazing thing is that the idea is this. In the age to come, 
The most common things are going to be as holy to God as the most high priest is. You couldn't imagine that. The, the horses, the hooves of horses, are going to be as holy and as reserved and set apart to God as the high priest of Israel. Then in Exodus 40, God moves in. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. That's the Shekinah glory cloud of God. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So at the end of Exodus 40, what you find is this, this plan of God in Exodus 25, this covenant plan of tabernacle presence, potentially disrupted by the sin of the people in covenant breaking in Exodus 32. But then God still reveals his name to Moses. Then the tabernacle is constructed. And then climactically, at the end of Exodus, God moves in. God takes up residence in the middle of his people. But the major question is this, you know, how can a holy God live in the midst of such a rebellious and unholy people? How is that possible? He can't just ignore their sin. The answer, of course, is that in grace and mercy, God provides atonement. Now, it's also worth saying in terms of the Pentateuch structure, that Leviticus comes immediately at the end of Exodus, and you know this, of course. But Leviticus is all about sacrifice and cleansing and holiness. It contains what sometimes can refer to as the holiness code. How do you live in a way which is pleasing to God? And so Exodus, God moves in to the middle of his people, and then immediately Leviticus starts telling you, now listen, God lives amongst us, but this is how we need to live. This is, this is what it means to be a holy people, living around a holy God. So Leviticus, uh, in terms of Old Covenant era, gives instructions for holy living. Now, ultimately, though, it's not the holy living or the obedience to Leviticus, the Levitical code, that allows God to have fellowship with his people. Every element in the Old Covenant, in this tabernacle system, as our author of Hebrews tells us in these verses, every element, from the atonement cover, to the bread, to the light, to the basin for washing and becoming clean, altar for sacrifice, it all points to Jesus. Uh, John's Gospel actually unfolds a lot of these images in the statements of Jesus. Uh, he's the bread from heaven. Uh, he's the light of the world. You start working through all the things that Jesus says, you need to find out that, that Jesus is, is intentionally and consciously fulfilling tabernacle, temple, priesthood, sacrifice. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He made His dwelling among us in John 1.14 is literally tabernacled or set up his tent. Jesus tabernacled among us. That is, he was right in the middle of us. He's the fulfillment of tabernacle. Glory. We have seen his glory. That's the glory that fills the tabernacle in the end of Exodus, the very glory of God. And then he is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth 
is God's self-description in Exodus 34, 6. Translated from Hebrew often as love and faithfulness. Chesed and Hemet. It's a gracious love. And, and faithfulness sort of refers to truthfulness in the sense of if something is faithful, if you can have faith in something, you can count on it. You can count on its reliability, uh, which is sort of an, uh, another approximation, actually, of its truthfulness, its trustworthiness. And so grace and truth is full of grace and truth. is a reminder of chesed and hemeth. That is, he is he, the son actually is the one who bears the name of God revealed in Exodus 34, 6. So to the question, how can a holy God live in the midst of a sinful people? The ultimate answer is this. It's because the incarnate word, Jesus, is the fulfillment not only of the individual items in the tabernacle, he's the fulfillment of the tabernacle system itself, including priesthood including sacrifice, including atonement. Jesus is the tabernacle, the place where God takes away our sin. So Hebrews 9, 11, we'll start it by saying, but when Christ came as high priest, it is, this is the old system. The old system had glory in a sense, but the old system pointed forward to Jesus. And it's only in Jesus that these questions are resolved. It's only in Jesus that we find how it is exactly that a holy God can live amongst a holy people. These things applied for a time. They were pointing forward prophetically to the coming of Jesus. And now that these things are here, now that Jesus has come and the new covenant era is inaugurated as Hebrews 8 is about, now that Christ is here, these good things, these fulfillment things are here tabernacle system is set aside because the word has tabernacled amongst us. He is full of grace and truth. And when we see him, we see the glory of God and receive all the blessings of promises that he has come to give us. Well, may God help us. May God help us uh, to see, you know, sort of the glory of the new tabernacle in its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. May God bless you.